And now, coming to you live from the very end of the year, it's a pre-holiday hiatus Crude Street podcast, looking back at the year in review with Gary K. Wolf, Jonathan Strahan, and very special guest James Bradley on the Crude Street podcast. We sound so much more professional now that we are professional, I guess. <laughs> First of all, welcome, James. Welcome, James. Thanks, guys. I'm very pleased to be here. It's great to have you back. <laughs> Again. Again. It seems like Again. Oh, weeks yeah. since we saw each other. <laughs> but I guess we should explain the professional comment before we get started. Yes, and that can. is, we're about to begin a hiatus, James. Uh, we've got ep- uh, episodes we recorded back at World Fantasy Convention in Washington. They're going to go out to the world. We're going to go off and be busy doing other things for a while. But uh, probably one of the first podcasts after we return live will be our first as a Tor.com podcast because the Coot Street podcast is going to be hosted there and will be part of their family of podcasts. Very exciting. I hope it will be. I mean, we're pretty happy about it, aren't we, Gary? We're very happy about it, and and it's nice to be part of a family of podcasts, which sounds sounds something vaguely nautical. <laughs> well, I think the real advantage of it is, we hope, is that more people will get a chance to hear hear Cood Street, and we'll get to sort of share these conversations more more sort of widely afield, which would be nice. Um, and- yeah. And in fact, when we do, we'd like to have you back if, if, if you are available. And maybe we can talk about your new novel, Clade, at the time, because, of course, it's coming out towards the end of January. Yeah, it's a, it's a February release in Australia, so it's out end of January, last week of January, I think. Which is exciting. I'm still waiting to work out when it's out overseas, but uh, hopefully eventually. <laughs> Fingers crossed. But <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure it will be. It's just we're in the that's being wrangled at the moment. Yeah, as these things do. But what we're here to do uh, sort of in this sort of pre-holiday, pre-Christmas, pre-Hanukkah, pre, you know, the the, the festive storm that awaits us all is to take a a moment to look back at the year in review, talk about 2014 in books and whatever we've got a chance to do in 60 minutes, and then see how, how we think things are going with our field. So how's your 2014 been, James? I look good. I feel I've had. It, it's funny. You have those years where you look back and you feel like you read really well. And I actually must say, I look back this year and feel like I've read a bit scattily, um, uh, just because I feel like there's been an awful lot of. Just, I've been writing a great deal and working a great deal on books, and it just means that my reading's been a bit all over the shop. I think, but I've read. I've read a number of things I thought were really terrific. Um, and particularly in the last kind of three or four months, I've read a number of terrific things in in the way that you do, because of course they time all the releases for the last half. Of the sure, of course. Year. <laughs> and you, you Gary, how about you? I, I I was surprised when I went back and looked at um, things that I'd reviewed this year that there were it was a longer list of things that I would that I would read again. I mean, part part of what um, happens to me, and I don't know if this happens to you, James, when you're on a deadline for a review, is that you're getting the book done, you're writing something up about it. And then at the end, you think, I would like to go back and just read this book and enjoy it at some time. Uh, and there were a fair number of books that I would be willing to reread on this year's list. Yeah, I, I must say I would say the same thing. I, I keep a list through the year of what I've read these days just so that I can keep track of it, because otherwise I cannot, I can't even remember the last book I read, let alone what I read six months ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and one thing, having said that, I had a scatty year. I must say, when I was looking back over it, I, I made a list for today. You know, this is remarkable organisation on my part. Um, <laughs> having actually made a list, I looked at it and I thought, well, there's actually, as I looked at the books, there was almost nothing I'd read that I hadn't thought was really good, which was a really nice thing. It wasn't that thing where you're looking at all the things you read and think, God, I read some crap this year. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking, the stuff I read was mostly terrific, you know, so... I want, that was a really nice feeling. One of the issues that I want to raise, which uh, may not be a, well, it may, may or may not be a, a major issue or an ongoing issue. Uh, and one of the strongest titles I thought I read this year was a title which is apparently not going to appear in the United States at all. And I don't know if it's going to appear in Australia. And that was Simon Ings's Wolves. Yeah. Um, oh, it's very good. It's a terrific novel. Why is it not available in the U.S.? Well, that's I can't help Okay. Who knows? I mean, I can say that Golan's distributed there, Gary. Well, you can get it. That's true. You can you can get it. 
But um, I, I suspect, I mean, it's a sad fact of marketing, I think, maybe, that Ings's previous books haven't sold as well as they could have, and that's why. However, I mean, in fact, I'm not even sure. I'd have to go back and off the top of my head whether any of his books have been published in the U.S. Uh, directly. You know, if you go back to, you know, years and years ago. I certainly know that his previous one I don't think was. But this was a remarkable book. Mm. Now we're talking about Wolves, which is almost in a, you know, Mike Harrison sort of space as a science fiction novel. Uh, it's smart. It's well-written. It's near future. It's timely. It's exactly the kind of challenging literary book we would want the field to have, I think, and should be applauded as one of the books of the year. And I, I suspect, looking ahead, that we'll see it on British awards ballots, but that may be all. It may very well be the case. I mean, it's one of the things that... Um We've talked about this before. When we when we had Paul McCauley on the podcast, he, his books are not coming out in the United States, and he's clearly one of the major writers in the field and has been for decades. Um, so this is this seems to me to be a it, it may not be a problem, and it almost certainly is nothing but marketing. But nevertheless, um, I'm always nervous when I come across something like this. And I think uh, Jonathan, you called wolves to my attention. I'm not sure I would ever have heard of that book if if I hadn't been, you know, working for Locus and we had uh, awareness of that coming out because I don't keep track of these things. Uh, one of the books, uh, I, I don't mind if there's a delay of a year because one of the things I actually had on my list uh, was Christopher Priest's The Adjacent, which actually is a 2013 book in mm. the UK. For those of us in the US, it's a 2014 book. Yeah. The flip side, of course, though, is that one of the best fantasy books I read this year, in fact, probably one of the two best fantasy books I read this year was um, the, the third volume in Lev Grossman's series, The Magician's, yeah. the Magician's Land. Um, and I don't think The Magician's Land is getting a release in the UK at this point. That may have been sorted out, but certainly for a while it was only coming out in the States. That's and it's been massively successful in the state. It was the, what, it was the number one New York Times bestseller for a week or two there. Yeah, and they're making it yeah. into a TV series and all that. Did you feel it tied up the series well? Oh, I look. I thought it was terrific. Um, I think all three of those books are terrific. I mean, I should I should say before I said this, Lev is a friend, but I liked the books before I knew Lev. Um, uh, but um, no, no, I, I think it's a really impressive and interesting book. And I mean, I think that the all three of them, you've seen this kind of development in Lev's writing. And I mean, one of the things that's so fabulous about him is not just that he's incredibly smart at a at a thematic and a narrative level. The prose is incredibly intelligent. So you've got this incredibly smart writing kind of line to line, which makes them great. An, an incredible awareness of the genre that he's working in. But then you've got this thing in the third, which I think makes it really lovely, where I guess he kind of lets up on the character a bit. And there's, I mean, there's a level at which it's pretty, it's one of those books where your central character is, is at one level clearly live. You know, it's clear that there's a great deal of identification between the central character and the author. Um, and I guess he just, there's a sense that he just lets the throttle back a bit and lets this guy be who he needs to be. You know, he's not so hard on him as a writer anymore. And, and that's actually kind of great. I, look, I thought, I think it's a wonderful book. But I, I, I thought all three of them were wonderful books. So that was, was that, was that your favourite fantasy of the year? I think my favourite fantasy of the year would be tied between that and the, uh, and Clariel, the, um, the Garth Nix's new book, which I just mm -hmm. think is terrific. Um, and possibly the David Mitchell, if you wanted to call it uh, fantasy. I'm not quite sure what That's what, the bone, the bone um, clocks. Yeah, the bone clocks, yeah. which which I think is a terrific book. I, I, I think it's very funny that I like the bone clocks because I've always been a bit sceptical of David Mitchell mm. and everyone else in the world loves David Mitchell. And I've always been like, well, I don't know about these books. You know, and this one came out and I really loved it. And <laughs> 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 it's been the worst of his career. <laughs> Both of those books, uh, interestingly enough, when you mentioned the, the, the David Mitchell book and especially the Lev Grossman books, are what somebody several years ago, I don't know, some critic called critical fictions, because as you say, they're both aware of the genres that they're working in. I think David Mitchell probably knows a lot more about science fiction and fantasy than he lets on. And Lev Grossman, of course, has, you know, has it's essentially an almost, almost scholarly critical approach to classic fantasy, and he's resonating with that throughout the first novel in the series, which is actually the only one I read. But but I, I always enjoy reading fantasies or science fiction by people who are knowledgeably playing with 
with the with the conventions of the genre. I think that's right. I mean, I was actually thinking when I was pulling this list together that one of the things that's very striking to me, look, and I think it's really striking to anyone who's reading around the field, is the number of books that are being published as mainstream fiction, but which are essentially using science fictional and fantastical tropes, one kind or another. You know, the Mitchell's one of them, the, the Michael Farber book that's just come out. Uh, I think you'd probably read the Richard Powell's book from earlier in the year, Orfeo, as, as science fiction. John Daniel's Wolf in White Bands and other ones. I mean, there's, there's lots of these kinds of books. But but then it's it's only really tangentially in that space. I mean, it doesn't really have any genre elements to it overtly, does it? The Daniel. Yeah, the, the Wolf in White Van. Yeah, the Daniel Wolf in White Van. It doesn't have any real genre elements at all. Mm. Well, no, but it has a high, it has a highly tuned awareness of genre. Because yeah. I mean, there's all of the stuff about gore. I mean, and, and it fits in that kind of critical critical fiction, which is what what Gary was talking about, I think, I think quite sure. well. But what I was going to say is one of the things I, I was thinking when I was looking at this is you look at someone like Simon Ings and he is intensely aware of the genre that he's coming out of. And that book, Wolves, is a book that's deeply aware of the kind of tropes it's working with and the history of them. But often those books that are being published over in the mainstream are not aware of those tropes. And in a sense, the Mitchell and Lev are kind of exceptions in that. In that regard, so if you looked at another book like Station Eleven, the um, uh, Emily Engine Man yeah. book, or, or California, or California, which is the other one I've, I've actually got here on my list. You know, they're, they're books that are not particularly aware, I don't think, of those of those traditions. And I, I don't mean that as a criticism, but I wonder whether that's one of the things that distinguishes what you'd identify as kind of genre and wouldn't these days i, th I think i think the book, I think those two books yeah um i mean i don't know either of the authors of, of of california or station 11 but i know people who know them and it seems to me that this is a genre this is this is a generation after the generation of jonathan lethem and michael chabon these are people to whom uh i don't think they associate those tropes the post-apocalyptic thing uh the kind of uh, there's, there seems to be a lot in the setting of Station Eleven that's a, a bit like Robert Charles Wilson's, uh, 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 what was that, the Julian thing, which became an oh, yeah. um, Julian Comstock. Julian yes. Comstock. Yeah. Uh, but I think that these people are, are growing up in a kind of new literary community to which the distinctions that we're talking about aren't even on their radar. I don't think they... I don't think they think that uh, post-apocalyptic fiction is genre or not genre. It's simply part of the arsenal now. Mm. Well, I, mean, I would have said if you looked at Chabon or um, or Lethem or even Lev to an extent Grossman, um, you see that 10, 15, 20 years ago, that use of genre tropes was in a sense a radical thing to do as a mainstream literary writer. I yeah. mean, it was an embrace of that thing, and now it's just part of the... It, in a sense, it's part of the menu of things that you can use. You know, I feel like yeah. writing a Steinbeckian social realist novel, or I feel like writing a post-apocalyptic novel. I mean, they're both perfectly valid choices. But I think, I think that the post-apocalyptic scenario has sort of been assumed by a more literary. I mean, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. There are mainstream uh, popular writers, bestseller writers, the uh, Audrey Niffenegger's and the Lauren Bucuses, who clearly think that. Time travel, for example, is um, a device that you use in a serial killer novel in the case of Bucus or in a romance in the case of Niffenegger. I don't, these, these people have much more literary foci. They're not really uh, trying to write thrillers uh, adapting science fiction tropes. They're just, they don't think of them as science fiction or fantasy tropes at all. Well, certainly not. I mean, don't you think, Gary, that there's an element, and we've talked about that before, where the tropes, the modes, the... The, the tools of genre have become so widely known that you get that weird feedback loop of things influenced by them without ever using them in a way that would make sense in their original context. I think that's probably true. And I, I, I'm aware from my neighbor down the hall who writes Harlequin romances that apparently the romance field has a whole, not, not just paranormal romance, but apparently time travel is just something you can do in a romance. And, and no romance readers, apparently, think that they're reading a time travel story when they're doing that. Yeah. Well, I have to say that, I mean, I see it across at, at novel length. I see it at uh, short fiction length. I mean, I was reading a story the other day that it was, in effect, oh, philosophically based science fictional treatise about 
an AI chasing magicians that were disrupting the world they were in. And it was the stuff of hard science fiction blurred completely with the stuff of magic in a way that seemed to make sense, but wouldn't have wouldn't necessarily have made sense 50 years ago. These are the ways of the world. What other great books did we read this year? I mean, I would say that, I mean, for me, looking around fa fantasies, for example, I loved Beautiful Blood by Lucia Shepard, his final novel, which is, you know, the final one of the Dragon Grey Rule sequence. And whilst it's maybe not the best, best, best of them, is really terrific. And I also loved, and I know you did, Gary, I don't know if you read it, uh, James, Mary Rickert's The Memory Garden. No, I didn't read it. I meant to. It was on my list. I remember you two talking about it on the on the podcast, and I I put it down on my list of things to read, but never got around to it. Yeah. It, it was one of these things that, again, got published uh, by a, basically a publisher who doesn't know how to get the book to people in our field, I think. I mean, it's, it's largely, uh, I think they wanted to get this in front of romance readers, and it's a surprisingly tender book given how dark Mary Rickard's fiction usually is. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Jonathan. I will add to this, I think, the best collection of the year. Uh. Um, anybody want to guess what I'm going to say? Academic Jonathan? Exercises by K.J. Parker. K.J. Parker's Academic Exercises, where you see a bunch of those novellas together and think, this is unlike anything else out there. Um, and, they, and, and the other thing which is fascinating to me about it, they're, they're pseudo-histories, they're false histories, more than their fantasies. There's something very old-fashioned about that mode of storytelling, which almost makes it seem as though Parker is inventing it again for the first time, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it has that sort of sly wit, a dark sense of humor, uh, a slant-eyed look at history merging with fantasy. They're very cleverly written. Um, very for, I mean, for the most part, I mean, it's interesting because... They, you know, it, it's. I think Parker's fiction sits in an odd place in fantasy. It's not quite like a whole lot of other things. Uh, sometimes it sort of wanders around, you know, gender issues as well. It's mostly told, I think, from a male perspective, which is interesting. Um, but does bring, yeah, an awareness, I think, of the history of the genre to it. Have you had a chance to read much of the short fiction, uh, James? Um, no, I shan't read almost no short fiction this year. I was allowing you to do that for me, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> no, I've said one this year's road, just haven't read much short fiction. Um, the thing I did read, which I thought was really interesting, was the um, Margaret Atwood collection, Stone Mattress, which is obviously another one of these kind of crossover mainstream uh -huh. books. I mean, despite her protestations, she's clearly writing fantastical literature. And it's it's great. I mean, it's one that it's like all that wood stuff. It's incredibly funny. It's yeah. incredibly smart. Um, I think there is a slightly didactic thing about about the the reading of genre fiction going on in it some of the time. I think also though one thing that's odd about it is that in a way, a bit like the the recent novels, I'm not sure that they're brilliant short stories, but they're brilliantly written and they're incredibly entertaining. And I'm not sure how satisfying they are as short stories. Does that make any sense at all? Like you kind of read them and you go, "Wow, that," and then you think, "I'm not sure it really worked as a story, qua story." <laughs> I loved every second that I was reading it. <laughs> but they're, 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 they seem to me to circle around this. Oh, the, the main character in the first story, I think, is a fantasy writer, isn't that the case? And that stuff's fantastic. And she's got the terrible boyfriend who becomes the poet. Okay, that's who it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no. It, 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 Look, I I love them. There's the great one about the um about the storage unit, the guy who goes out and buys storage units at auction, and he you know basically when people have not paid their rent on their storage unit, he goes and he bids at the auctions and he buys a storage unit. You empty them out, sometimes there's good things in it, and he buys this storage unit. He hasn't gone to open it yet, and this woman turns up and says, "You've got to sell it back to me." He says, "Why?" Before he as he opens it, he opens it and looks inside it, and there's a dead body stuffed in plastic. And just as he opens the door, a woman comes around the corner and says, I must buy it back from you. <laughs> and the stories are all like that. They're fantastic stories. And they are, you know, there is more smarts in a page of Margaret Atwood than, you know, most people's whole novels, you know. I and she's like, so funny. So evil. She's a very funny writer. I, I, I think she's that. So wicked. My, my problem with the Orcs and Craig trilogy was I think that that earnestness and didacticism that sometimes seemed to, to, to somebody reading, somebody used to reading things like that, there were 
a lot of bits in that that she clearly thought were a lot more original than they were. Yeah. And therefore seemed a little bit overexplained. Uh, but when she lets the characters bounce off each other, the way she does in, in her earlier fiction, you're right, she's one of the funniest writers out there. Yeah, I mean, I also think that that third of the Oryx and Crank books, which, to be fair, I really liked, but I also thought it had one of these, these massively overcomplicated structures. Yeah. Um, which was a pity, but I mean, it's also, I mean, it's something where you feel like you're kind of complaining at the same time as you're saying, I enjoyed this more than anything else I read for three months on either side. <laughs> so that kind of funny reaction where you're saying, I loved it so much while I was reading it and it's something to have read, but then I've got all of these arguments with it at the same time. Right. So it's, it, it, I haven't had quite a complex reaction to a work like that, but I mean, I, I thought Stone Mattress is actually terrific. It's a terrific book. But no, I, I've not read much short fiction to answer your, Fair your original I was I I've been waiting for you to do that work for me, Jonathan. Yeah, I'm kind of doing that at the moment. Yay! And actually, I will mention a few <laughs> stories a little bit later on if we have time. I was going to say one of the most fun books that I read all year was Nadia Korafor's Lagoon, which was this goofy alien invasion in Lagos novel inspired by her treatise on video games, with strange characters coming out of the ocean, uh, spirits onto the road all this kind of thing, and it was vibrant, and it was loose, and it was funny, and it was energetic, and it was a really, really great book, I thought. I mean, I understand, I mean, it's coming out next year, and I think there's been a few minor changes to it uh, in the U.S., it's but it's a great that, book. That's almost the opposite of the Chris Priest book, in the sense that uh, it came out last year in the U.K., and will be out this mm. year in, in the United States with some changes. I think part of the reaction to that, I talked to Nettie about it briefly at uh, ICFA, uh, last March, is Nettie is a very intense and very committed writer uh, who has done some fairly, fairly grim stuff, especially in Who Fears Death. And, and she's clearly having a lot of fun with this novel. And this is something I've seen happen before. I've even ha seen it happen with Ursula Le Guin, who was having a lot of fun several years ago when she wrote Changing Planes. And there was a certain set of readers that said, you're not supposed to have fun. You have written books that upset us. We want to be upset and depressed by your books. And here you are <laughs> making fun of monster movies. Uh, well, i got to tell you, she does a great job. And uh, I, I think that anybody who picks it up next year will love it, or anyone who's fortunate enough to get, get, get it in the hotter edition will. What's next on your list, James? Oh, well, my list is not in any particular order. Um, look, I want to come back in a minute to the Garth Nix. Okay. I think, I think we should. Okay, well, let's talk about it now. I mean, it's sitting on my to-read pile, so talk to us about Clariel. I mean, I know what it is. It's a, it's a prequel to the Old Kingdom series uh, set, what, four or five hundred years earlier? Yeah. Please don't ask me exactly how much earlier, but earlier. Um, I don't know if either of you have read it, but, I mean, I think, look, I, I love the Old Kingdom books. Um, I think this one's really good but I actually think it's a really interesting book because I feel like he's written about a character who is not a character you see a great deal of in fantasy to begin with but to be honest not much in fiction at all who is a very angry and quite difficult character but also the point of her is that she doesn't really change and she doesn't want to change and so the book has quite an odd effect because you have this kind of character who's you know, in a sense, the point of her is that she keeps messing up in the same way and eventually kind of gets through and uh, and resolves the situation. But it makes for quite an odd kind of experience because it's not that sort of that kind of affirming thing that you get in a lot of this kind of fiction, particularly when it's aimed at younger readers. I'm saying that in a very careful way because I don't want to offend anybody. But, um, but I, I thought it was... I don't mean that as a criticism, either of Garth's novel or of other books. Um, but it, it's a really interesting and I think really clever book. And it shows just, I think, just how rich that, that world that he's created in the Old Kingdom is. I mean, I think it's a really impressive book. Well, it's, and it's one that's really stayed after reading it. Yeah. I'd certainly say that I think the Garth Nix who writes Old Kingdom is different from the Garth Nix who writes everything else that he does. There is a richness of tone to his writing that comes into mm. it when he writes in the Old Kingdom. And there's a greater, I want to say, solidity and clarity of character that comes into it as well. And he's set it against a very 
well-structured and well-thought-out background, so the characters and the arcs they go through generally stand out very well. I'm surprised. I'm interested, actually. I'm very interested that you would say that you know, you've got you've got a story now where, in effect, I suppose the story has to have the arc that allows the character not to change. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to overemphasize that too much, but no, 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 she no. is an odd character. She's not the kind of character you read about very much in fiction. Because yeah. she's actually what in fact my partner in fact says about a character who decides not to be Darth Vader. But um which is not a bad <laughs> summation of <laughs> the story, I think. But um it is I think it's a really I also think it's an interesting book because it's it's a much more adult book in a sense than look and I have to say it's some years since I've read the other old kingdom books. I was going yeah, I was going to ask that if because it's been the last thing I read of Garth's other than his short fiction was the Sabriel, uh, the original trilogy. And yeah. would this book make sense to somebody who who really doesn't remember remember it all that well? Yes, it would. I mean, and it's one of those nice things where not only would it make sense, but there's a moment where one of the important characters from the first three books turns up, and it's the most exhilarating moment. She's like, oh, it's, you know, whoever this character is, which is is one of those kind of great things that writers pull off sometimes, where you just, a character that you love, and you're two-thirds of the way through the book thinking, I'm not going to see that character, suddenly turns up, and the whole thing changes because of it. It's it's really fun. But no, it's, it's a terrific book. I mean, I, I do. You do make it sound a little bit like another book that I I love a great deal, though perhaps slightly less in in, in similarity, and that is uh, Tahanu by Le Guin. And the reason I say it echoes Tahanu to for me a little bit is because Sabriel, Lyriel, and Aborson, which are the Old Kingdom books, are very clearly YA novels, and they're very good YA novels, beloved YA novels. Mm. Now, Clariel sounds as though it's got quite a different tone in some ways to it. And you're saying in some ways an older and more mature book. And that's very much true of Tahanu as well. When you sit it against the uh, Earthsea books, it sort of sits off that series rather than being completely hand in glove with it. And I think that's its great strength. I mean, rather than just doing what you've done again. So I'm, I'm fascinated to read the book. I mean, I'm desperate for some time off to do it. And actually I'm holding in my hands uh, the galley of Garth's next book, Ah. which is To Hold the Bridge, which is a short story collection that features a long novella set in the Old Kingdom, which uh, I, actually I'm familiar with and I, I like a great deal. And I would re- re- recommend Garth's short fiction. It's going to come up later on. What well, else? Oddly, what enough, mm-hmm. oddly enough, I said to Garth Jonathan that I thought it was his Tahanu. <laughs> really? <laughs> I said it, that is interesting. That is actually the terms I used when I was speaking to him. Well, I, I am looking forward to it. What else do we want to talk about next? What do we want to talk about next? Because sooner or later we'll run out of time. So what are we eager to talk about? If we're still we on get... fantasy, we're still on more or less young adult fantasy. I suppose we should mention Joe Abercrombie. I think we can. I mean, Half a King is a really interesting novel, and I don't know if you've read it, James. But it's 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 a. I, I guess it's what what it's interest in some ways is that it brings a lot of the the darkness and the grimness of Lord Grimdark's. Um, adult fiction to a YA book. It's a shorter, in some ways, less complex, complicated, though not simple, uh, tale, set against a, a northern slash Nordic fantasy background. It has a, you know, a a young protagonist who is damaged and who has to overcome that damage to assume his position in the story. Though that's played against a little bit. It's really cleverly done. I think it's a... I've encountered a few people who don't love the book a great deal. I think it's actually a good book and a lot of fun. And I've been meaning to finish... um, to get around to reading the second one, which is out any time now, so... You go... I'm I'm anxious to see the second one. My my, my sense about it is that um, it was... And this is partly my bias in terms of reading fantasy. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about to formulate a dumb idea here. I, I see two kinds of fantasy readers. There are the fantasy readers who grew up wanting to read more Robert Louis Stevenson, where the action is all on the ground and one thing happens after another, and the world that is built around this is the world which is necessary to sustain that action. There, there's, there's depth to it, so you can make room for more stories. And then there are the other readers who want the world. There are the readers who want, let's say, they're E.R. Edison readers. They love complex baroque worlds with every detail down to the stitching on the clothing and the kind of food that's served uh, where 
a, a novel the length of um, Joe Abercrombie's Half a King could easily have been 700 pages long had it been written in this second style. I finally decided I'm one of the readers who like the first style. I like um, a fantasy to, to move fairly quickly. And I lose patience with world building sooner than I should, I think. <laughs> John Harrison, M. John Harrison once said that world building is the great clomping foot of nerddom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not necessarily endorsing that remark. I'm just putting it out there. Okay. <laughs> there are times when it's a pleasure, but yes. I mean, there are many, many fine fantasies. I mean, there are, well, there are a good handful of other fantasies I'll mention just quickly. I mean, uh, I'm waiting to read, I confess, though, you did, Gary, Bathing the Lion by Jonathan Carroll. I was going to mention that next. Well, then let's let's, because we will come back to talk about it a little bit later. But what were your feelings on the book? It's been a while since I've read a Jonathan Carroll novel. Every time I read a John, and there are there are things that you could say about any Jonathan Carroll novel, um, that that make make it sound incoherent. If you try to talk about a Jonathan Carroll novel, you will make it sound incoherent because it takes left turns. It pulls it pulls things in from science fiction and fantasy. They're they're basically they're time lords in Bathing the Lion, although they aren't called that. But uh, Every Jonathan Carroll novel seems like the first Jonathan Carroll novel you've read, and I don't know how he does that. And I find myself completely drawn into it. In this case, he has a completely, fully realized small town, I believe it's in Vermont, and a set of very, really likable characters. He's, 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 a, he's a writer of sometimes fairly dark fantasy who really seems to uh, be compassionate toward the characters he's writing about, and I find that a relief. Um, and, and he also always has dogs, and he writes dogs better than anybody. <laughs> well, hopefully we will have him on the podcast to talk about it. There's a book that I want oh, to talk about. Oh, sorry, I was going to say, I have a theory that the two people who write animals best are actually George Eliot and Ursula Le Guin, both of them who do animals terrifically well. They, they capture both the animalness and their kind of selfness at the same time. Yeah. The scene with the dog at the beginning of Adam Bede. Oh, that's true. <laughs> and, and Buffalo Gals, the whole collection Buffalo Gals was a collection of animals. Speaking about talking about books that talk about uh, talk about animals, there was a book that came out this year that had a talking animal in it, if I recall correctly, which I tried to twist James's arm into reviewing for us, and that was Baked by Adam Roberts, which has had a lot of fantastic press. And it's such a great book. I, I, I was just sitting here while you were talking about thinking, uh, I need to actually talk about the books that I really loved. And one of them was, I don't know how to say it, Bet, Bet, how do you say it? Um, uh, which is... Bet, I think. Yeah, look, I, I'm almost not, honestly not Bet, sure. Probably but um, it is a terrific book. I mean, it is, it is incredibly smart. It is incredibly fun. It is brilliantly written. Um, and it is incredibly disquieting but it's also one of these books as you say Jonathan which is intensely about other books you know hardly surprisingly given that it's Adam Roberts but you know there's a kind of sense of play constantly with its literary antecedents going on but I mean the, the, the concept behind the book is that you have a very near future where environmental activists have developed small kind of uh, they're like they're almost like kind of viral AIs, and what you can do is you can put this thing into an animal's mouth, and it will burrow up through its um, through the top of its mouth into its brain, and will kind of grow itself into its brain and create a new neural mm. net, which will boot the animal's brain up so that it's much more sophisticated, and the animal will then be able to talk. It will have complex cognition, all of that kind of thing. Now, the book then raises the question about whether it is the animal or the AI that's actually speaking to you. But it means that basically they put them into all the animals. So the cows who are being slaughtered all start talking back and people's dogs start talking and cats start talking. And farming falls apart. And it's a, it's a terrific book. It's a really clever, funny book that's a, a, a playing with Animal Farm, playing with all of these other works at the same time, but which is intensely disturbing at the same time it's, it's a terrific book good i'm looking forward to that as well mm. I, I, look, I also think it's interesting because i would have said that one of the things that i'm very aware of in my reading in the last probably 18 months is the growing number of works that i'd see as i guess kind of anthropocene novels and 
you know, I think the David Mitchell is that. I mean, one of the things I think one of the reasons I liked the most recent David Mitchell so much was that, unlike a number of his other novels, I actually knew what he was writing. I felt the book was actually about something other than itself, uh-huh. and it's clearly a it's clearly a book that's trying to grapple with deep time, trying to find a way of talking about deep time, and it, and it does that in a really interesting and I think quite sophisticated way. But you know, you could look at the William Gibson novel, which is probably along with Beth the best science fiction book I've read this year. Yeah, and you know, it's another Anthropocene. You know, it's another novel that's about time. It's about the destruction of the natural world. You know, it's about this kind of grief and loss of, uh, of the kind of historical and geological moment that we live in is all over. You know, so, I mean, uh, you know, and in an odd kind of way, um, Wolves is another one because yeah. Wolves is a book that's very much about the weirdness and the, the flooding of the world and all, the, all of that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, I do think this, this kind of wave of kind of Anthropocene books is actually really interesting. Station Eleven, California. I mean, lots of these post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic novels are clearly about that. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I, mean, I think the Gibson is worth talking about because it is, it's a terrific book. It's a really terrific book for Gibson. Um, and the, it's one of those books, the further I've got away from it, the more I've been impressed by it. You know, those books that grow in your mind, yeah. the more, yeah. the longer you, you have them sitting there. And I, I, I was hugely impressed by it when I read it. I mean, at a kind of writing level, it's so exciting. You know, the, mm. the actual prose is so, so brilliantly wrought. But it's such a, such a clever, moving, slick little book. I'm curious as to whether it's the beginning of another trilogy as well, because you've got that thing about where is this server that they're using? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, there's there's a series of things sitting there, which is clearly what further books in the series could be about, which I, I thought was interesting. And he does seem to work in trilogies. Well, do you think that this is as it was reviewed that, uh, or it was it was it was hailed, I guess, or welcomed by a lot of the bloggers as as a quote return to science fiction? I put that in quotes for reasons I can explain in a minute. Um, I don't know that I thought that. I thought it was interesting that it was a book that was a high concept science fiction novel, which he certainly hadn't done for 15 years. Um, I think it's a much stronger book than the last two. I think Pattern Recognition is a really remarkable book. I enjoyed Spook Country and I liked Zero History quite a lot, but I felt with both of them there was a level at which they'd become almost kind of pariahic. And so you got the sense that they're very clever, they're very entertaining, but you did feel a bit like he was doing them for his own entertainment rather than because he really had something he needed to say. And with this one, you feel like he's got something he needs to say. And one of the things that makes it really, I think, really interesting, I'm not sure if you've read it, but one of the things that makes it so good is that it is half of the novel is set in this near future America, but it's set in a kind of backwards Virginia, which is where Gibson himself grew up. And there is this sense of a, kind of fully lived social reality that it's inhabiting, which I must say you don't really have in the last couple of novels. You know, they're, they're all about kind of, you know, ruthless cosmopolitans drifting around cosmopolitan cities, mm. whereas this book feels real, it feels grounded, it feels emotionally kind of resonant. So, yeah, I, I think it's a terrific book, The Peripheral. It was on my list very much. Yes. What else you got, Gary? Well, one of the um, well, one of the books I liked, and this is this is another issue which comes up more and more. Um, well, I mean, we talked about it when Genevieve was on the podcast recently, the, the the girls of the Kingfisher Club, which is which is that sort of fantasy that isn't fantasy. It's an extremely unlikely story, but it's a love letter to a uh, a moment of cultural change in in nineteen twenties flapper era New York. Uh, and it's very, uh, very shrewd and and very sweet at the same time. And this is the Twelve Dancing Princesses done as flappers, uh, with a really horrible father, um, who uh, is, is is a great character. But as as she explained, and I don't need to repeat this for people who heard that podcast. This is this is a father who grew up in the era of robber barons and in the era of patriarchs. And these are young girls who are just on the edge of the era of uh, women making their own decisions, and it's a so so at that level, it's a very interesting look at a moment in history. At another level, it's one of the better fairy tale redactions I've seen in several years. Yeah. And another another novel I'll throw out. Also, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. 
silence back as he admits he hasn't read the book. But yeah. No, no, no. I've heard excellent things about it, Gary. I was just I I was letting you talk. <laughs> <laughs> Did either of you read Joe Walton's My Real Children? No. I have read My Real Children. Okay, my thought on that is, again, this is a, this is a very sympathetic novel uh, that deals with very interesting characters, and in some senses is almost a thought experiment. I am not sure that I've read, uh, and I don't know if I'm spoiling this or not, but it, you know, if, if, a book's, if a book's been out for three or four months, you can spoil it, um, where somebody's life splits into and reunites at some point. So we're getting uh, an almost, there's, there's, the, the main criticism I would have of it is that the schematic, it's almost schematic in the way it asks a question. I mean, the question it basically asks is, would you rather have a rewarding, um, wonderful life with a wonderful partner, the woman uh, who's the um, travel writer, who's the main character in it, um, becomes involved and has a wonderful decades-long relationship with this woman in one version of her life. In the other version of her life, she marries this horrible guy and has her miserable life. But her miserable life takes place in a history which is actually much better than ours. Um, and the happy life takes place in a history which is apocalyptically awful. Um, and I, it, it, that, that seems schematic, but it seems very humane when you're reading it. Mm. I, I, look, I, I liked My Real Children. I, I loved Joe Walton's book before it, among others, which I just, yeah. I just adore. Yeah. Sorry, Jonathan and I have talked about this before. Um, I felt, for me, My Real Children, which I liked. You know, I don't, don't know. I'm about to say negative things about it, so I want to preface this by saying I did like it. Um, I felt it suffered from being read, I read it almost back to back with Kate Atkinson's novel Life After Life, uh -huh. which is a really terrific book and has a very similar conceit. Yeah, it's another one of these lives lived in different ways kind of novels. And I think one of the things that's really wonderful about the Atkinson novel is the first hundred pages or so where the character keeps dying again. You know, she keeps mm -hmm. living to six years old and she dies, seven years old and she dies. And I think Atkinson found a really clever way to look at something which really bedevils fiction, which is that that question of how do you demonstrate in fiction the total contingency of every moment of human life mm -hmm. while also having a plot? <laughs> so, I mean, and this one, the, I mean, the artificiality of fiction is always about how do you impose a plot on something that is about demonstrating contingency. Um, and she's got a really novel way of looking at that. And I felt like the Joe Walton novel really suffered for me for being read very in very close proximity to that book because I thought that book was really wonderful. Mm. My, my issue with the Joe Walton book was that it, I, I felt, I did feel it was a bit schematic. And I was troubled by the fact there only seemed to be these two worlds that we were looking at. Mm. Um, and I felt actually that, I mean, I actually heard her talking in one of your earlier podcasts about how the whole thing was told, which I thought was a really interesting, a really interesting thing to say. I mean, having just written a book, a great deal of which is told. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I should be careful about what I'm going to say next. Um, but um, the, I, I did think that one of the problems with it is that you have a situation where a number of the really big moments seem to me to lack any emotional impact. Um, and the characters just kind of get over them. There's a kind of, well, we'll just get over that dreadful thing that just happened to us and move on and continue living our lives. Mm. So I, I think I was psychologically unconvinced by some parts of it as well. But I, look, I, 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 I actually genuinely liked it. I didn't think it was as good as her last one, and I did think it suffered from being read for me in close proximity to the Atkinson, which I think is really, really mm. very good. Um, but it is, it is a very interesting book because it is also another one of these books at the moment, which is about endings. You know, I mean, there's a very strong thread of that in the fiction at the moment, a sense of kind of winding down and falling apart. That's an interesting observation. Indeed. Well, you may just for what you want to find, but I feel like there is. Well, uh, that, that sense, and this is, this is a novel which I, I'm just looking at this long list I have here. Um, but I'm looking down this list of novels, and, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, Johanna Senesalo's The Blood of Angels is another uh, book that is, the world is winding down. Um, and, in fact, it's winding down in, in terms mostly conveyed through 
a, a, a chunk of nonfiction, the, the, the blogs, the, the, the son of this main character, um, is an animal rights activist. Uh, and a, probably a third of the text is this young man's blog, and which is just absolute, um, it's, 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 a non, it, it, it's, it's a very well done screed about animal rights. The plot actually revolves around colony collapse disorder among honeybees. Um, oh, really? It does, and um, we'll have to talk about that at some other point. <laughs> but um, it's, it's, a, it's a very short novel. It's a very elegiac novel, and I'm seeing a lot of elegiac feeling uh, in things. There's a possibly the strangest science fiction novel of the year was Paul Park's All Those Vanished Engines, which is also very, by the time you get into the future of that world, is a, is, is a very elegiac kind of novel. Um, mm. Well, the David Mitchell is very definitely that And da one. David Mitchell uh, seems to be that way, too. The Michael Farber book, which, I, I, look, I, I, it's one of the most interesting books I've read this year, is interesting in this regard because it seems to me that it's a book that looks like it's a book about ending and actually isn't. It's a book that's really about consumer culture, you know, um, and about the, yeah, the possibility of grace, the possibility of just goodness in a world that's completely commodified, kind of run by, in a kind of capitalist society. And it makes it really interesting. I mean, there's a strong element of this kind of ending thing, and it's a big part of the plot because the world is falling apart right. um, in a truly dreadful way. But in an odd kind of way, it's a book that's actually about something quite different. It's about the possibility of grace, the possibility of goodness, the possibility of actual love and tenderness in a world where everything is commodified, everything is packaged, everything is, you know, we are alienated from every, mm -hmm. from every good thing by capitalism, which is odd because it actually sits with another book, which I suspect, I don't know if either of you have read, which I only read because I reviewed it, which is David Cronenberg wrote a novel this no, year. I knew, I knew about that. I was very curious about that. It's actually pretty good. It's better than pretty good. It's it's like a Cronenberg movie, except it's a novel. So it's deeply weird, deeply yucky, you know, <laughs> and kind of wonderful. You know, it is one of those books that needs to be read quickly. I mean, it's one of those books that basically you need to bolt it down in two sittings and you really enjoy it. Um, you wouldn't want to linger over it for too long, but it's very clever. It's very funny. And it's mm. absolutely about, you know, to what extent are we enslaved and consumed by the goods that we want to buy? But it's, it's a very funny book. I mean, you know, it's got insects inside bodies, <laughs> self-cannibalism. I mean, it's, got, it's got everything, you know, weird venereal diseases. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like a Cronenberg movie, except it's a book, you know. Um, but I, I actually really enjoyed it, you know. Well, one thing and I've got that wonderful yeah. that his stuff often has. For, for some reason, that prompts me to think about Jeff Vandermeer's books, you know, the Annihilation series. Uh, you know, was it the Southern Reach trilogy, mm -hmm. which has that same element of weirdness to its science fiction, but you know, and you get a very slight taste of that in in a, in a Cronenberg kind of esque way. But seemed to be a book that really opened up his career in many ways, and is is an interesting way of interrogating a landscape, given how it perpetually revolves around the same area, different kinds of activities, different kinds of viewpoints to give you different reactions to it. Um, did either of you uh, spend time with the books? I did. I, I uh, as a matter of fact, just last week I got the one volume edition. Uh, which looks like a thick novel, and it really it really works as a novel, I think, rather than a trilogy. And the thing that I was flipping through it again, I have not read uh, not read them for a while, but I was thinking this is the longest thing. This this novel, looking at it as a novel, The Southern Reach, is probably the longest thing that that Jeff Vandermeer has written, and probably the tightest at the same time. Yeah. Even though his earlier novels were shorter, they seemed a lot more self-indulgent than this does. It seems to me that he knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, it's not uh, its not really wasting any actions or words or characters. And it is, it is presenting us three different viewpoints. And the third, vo the third volume, the, third, the last third of the, of the novel, does wrap things up in a way that seems uh, sort of elegant, uh, which uh, is, it, it, it strikes me he's finally learned how to do what he wants to do with these books. 
Okay. And I mean, I think for me, one of the books of the year. A book that I loved this year, which I'm sure neither of you read, was Kelly Lincoln, Gavin Grant's uh, Monstrous Affections. It's a follow-up anthology of sorts to an earlier book called Steampunk. And it has a lot of the same kind of features to it. There's a small comic in it. There's a diverse range of stories. It's an anthology around a theme. In this case, about monsters and beastly tales. And yet, it's very different. There's space opera in it. There's horror in it. There's fantasy in it. There's at least three of the very best stories of the year. There's my favorite Paolo Bacigalupi story in half a decade, Moriabi's Children. Uh, Holly Black having a go at space opera and ten rules for being an intergalactic smuggler, the successful kind. And Alice Sola Kim's really rather extraordinary literary familial fantasy, Mothers Lock Up Your Daughters Because They Are Terrifying. Along with a very nice uh, new Kelly Link story. And it's just a joy of a book. Beautifully produced, beautifully made, wonderfully edited. One of the anthologies of the year and, and of the decade, probably. Should we talk a little bit about science fiction? It seems to me we've been talking about mostly well, about... Well, we've talked about the peripheral. We've talked about wolves. We've talked about Le Guin. We've talked about bait. We've talked about Area 6 or Area X. Sorry. What else do you have, is, Gary? Is any, of this, is any of this what you'd call hard science fiction? I have two. Okay, bring them in. <laughs> well, I have two hard science fiction I talk about. Um, the first is one of the best um, debut novels I read this year, which was Monica Burns' Girl in the Road, oh. um, which is another one of these books that looked like it was going to make a huge splash and seems not to have. You know, it arrived kind of extravagantly puffed by Kim Stanley Robinson and, and various other people. Um, and it's a really interesting book, which is also about trying to... I guess, decenter our assumptions about where the future takes place. So it takes place on the Indian Ocean um, between the African coast and India mm-hmm. um, and is very much about kind of characters from those worlds. And it's a really interesting piece of kind of environmental science fiction, um, which is, again, like the Ings, um, like the Vandermeer, like like a number of these books, is about a kind of environmental weirdness, amongst other things. Um, but is kind of really, uh, kind of brilliantly written. The science is incredibly good. I think Monica Byrne is actually a science journalist in her other life. Hmm. Um, uh, I thought it was a really impressive first novel. I really, I really liked it. Um, and the other one, which we need to talk about, is Ancillary Sword, isn't it? I guess I've got to say I read Ancillary Justice and I, I enjoyed it a very great deal, but I've not read Ancillary Sword because of I've my short fiction short. burdens. What'd you say, Have Gary? You read it, Gary? No, no, I've not. I don't. Uh... It, no, that's interesting. Well, I can tell. Well, I can tell you that part of the reason is because it was re- read and re- reviewed for, for Locus by um, Russell. By Russell. Um, Letson. And he, he gave it a great review. He, he, he loved it. He thought it was a, a tighter, more focused, almost more C.J. Cherry-ish kind of a story uh, based around a space station as it is in a very claustrophobic atmosphere. And he felt it was a more coherent and, and successful novel, in fact, than Ancillary Justice had been. What's your feeling? Well, it's just funny because I've read Russell's review and I think it's a really excellent review. Um I also think he's completely wrong. Um, <laughs> and both of you will understand that you can entertain those two things at the same time. You go, ah, I think this is a terrific review. It says really smart things. I also think it's wrong. Um, look, I really liked Ancillary Justice. Um, I think it's a really clever book. I think it does a whole series of very interesting things around gender. Um, I think it's a very well-crafted book. I thought Ancillary Sword at a character level is one of the best bits of science fiction I've read in years. I mean, she writes characters so well. Her actual writing is incredibly strong. Her sense of the world is really good. One of the things I loved in Ancillary Justice is all of the stuff about the gloves and the rituals of the, I've forgotten the name of the of the kingdom, of the empire, but whatever they are. Um, all of that is wonderful. You know, having having been really about world building before, yeah. I loved all of the world. Um uh, and Celery Sword I found really problematic because I felt like it was everything about it was really good except the core narrative, which seemed to me to be neither absorbing enough nor terribly well articulated, which seemed to me a terrible pity because 
the other stuff in the book is so good. It's just so good. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, everything to do with the characters is so brilliantly done. Um, but I, I was not convinced by it as a kind of narrative. I mean, I'm not saying it was bad. I just didn't feel it worked as well as the first one, which is why I thought it was so interesting that Russell Letson's review emphasised all of those elements because they seemed to me to be precisely the things that weren't working. Well, I wonder if that um, is because it you know, gave him more of the things he likes out of a story. I mean, I do know that some people, I seem to recall maybe uh, Annalene Newitz was saying that in a review that she felt that it was less finished less polished, yeah. less less done than Ancillary Justice, and then maybe it was perhaps hurried a little bit to fit into the uh, publishing life cycle of these things. Yeah, I, I remember reading Annalise's review and actually thinking that she was, I thought, rather guardedly saying all the things that I had kind of thought, which is that I didn't feel it worked necessarily. Mm. <clears throat> I didn't feel it was involving enough at a kind of narrative level. But, I mean, uh, having said that, all of the stuff with the characters is so good it is just so good and her actual writing is so good you know i i mean i'd read anything she wrote at this point i just i'm not clear that this is as that this at a narrative level works as well as ancillary sort ancillary justice which is just such a yeah. neat well put together book is there an element of the success of ancillary uh, sword that'll be determined by the success of the final book in the series I imagine so. Is it going to be a trilogy? Yes, always was going to be. It's interesting. I hope so. Look, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, having just been fairly critical of it, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, I really, I really love her as a writer. I think, I mean, I think the thing that's really interesting about both the books is that, I mean, people talk about all the gender stuff, which is incredibly interesting. And I think really shifts the way you think about a number of things when you're reading the books. But I actually think that the discourse that she's engaged in about the nature of empire, the nature of political power, the way it deranges individuals, the way it deranges societies, you know, the kind of the, I mean, there's that Walter Benjamin famously said that every document, every history of civilization is also a history of barbarity. And she could have used that as the epigraph to these books. And I actually think at a kind of moral and political and social level, they are incredibly sophisticated books and really interesting books. So, I mean, I, I, I think they're two of the most interesting science fiction books I've read in a long while, actually. Um, but in, a, in an odd kind of way, that's disguised by the fact that they look like a kind of fairly conventional space opera at another level. So they're kind of quite odd books in that way. Hmm. The last two uh, things I have on the list since we're about to run out of time also are hard science fiction novels that are follow-ups to earlier successful or popular novels. One is Peter Watts's Echopraxia, and the oh. other is Hanu Rayunyemi's The Causal Angel, um, both of which are the kind of book that... Um, I think if you're not really a stone hard science fiction reader, you're not going. They're, they're they're both writers who use the same use a similar technique, which is we're not going to give you an info dump no matter how badly you want one, and we are going to let these characters, uh, in in the case of Watts at least, mostly unsympathetic characters, you know, act out this really um, um, really imaginative. I mean. Very carefully worked out, very very thought through in terms of the science and the biology, and so I mean he had in, in, in Echopraxy he has a vampire and he has zombies, and and this is all you know explained the way a biologist can explain it, um, but um, I don't know if somebody who hasn't read previous Peter Watts stories and novels would be able to get past that 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 opening barrier, and of course Ryan Yemi's uh, stated in interviews that he just doesn't want to do uh, the info dump. And as a matter of fact, he said um, in a Locust interview, because I was there, that a lot of his friends who don't know um, the, uh, the vocabulary that he's invented or the kind of nanotechnology and information yeah. uh, world, that they just read that as prose poetry. They don't even worry about whether it means things. And I wonder, is there a generation of readers who are looking at really carefully worked out hard SF concepts and saying it's just prose? Probably. 
Well, more power. Maybe they're <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you, but probably. <laughs> that sounds that sounds feasible to me, Gary. Yes. Not a helpful thing to say, though, is it? What do you think? And how did you feel like Rexium shit up against Blindside, Gary? Uh, I like Blindside better. Mm, I think I did too. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Blindside helped. I mean, it's very difficult to imagine what it would have been reading this novel without Blindside uh, because so much of what goes on in this novel is set up there. Uh, so there's always a sense I have when I'm reading a second or a third novel in a, in a series that the, the level of discovery, the level of invention, the level of, uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the business with uh, gender in ancillary justice, you can't do that again in the second volume. Um, mm. So you have to invent new things. And, uh, and, and, and there's always that sense. I mean, I was, I was much more impressed by the first volume in, in Hanu Rayanimi's trilogy than I was by the second volume. And I think in the third volume, he, he more or less brings it back under control. But there's never that sense of discovery again. No, there's a wonderful chilliness about Blindsight, which makes it, like, it's one of those very startling books the first time you read it. And I felt like Echopraxia is, as you say, less startling because you've read him before. But there's also a kind of, there's something, it's a book that's almost daring you to dislike it. You know, it's yeah. trying to be unlikable, you know, which is a, uh, which is not to say I don't admire many things about it, but it's a book that it kind of, it's daring you to dislike it. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, it does perfectly. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I agree with that completely. Mm. Let me just say, as we are coming towards the end, are there any books you particularly want to name check? I've got one or two, but I'm curious. Maybe we'll go around starting with you, James. Are there any other particular books you'd like to see us mention? Um, look, I mentioned the... Uh, I mentioned um, Richard Powell's Orfeo before, which I think you could probably read as a science fiction novel, and I, I thought was really wonderful as a novel about terrorism and classical music, uh, which is you know, a classic kind of piece of Richard Powell's work. There are four books which I have not read, which I wish, you know, they're, they're kind of on the top of my list of things to read, and they are Europe in Autumn, uh, the Dave Hutchison yep. book, mm -hmm. which I don't know if you've read. Yeah, which I keep hearing good things about. And The Three-Body Problem uh, is another one that I desperately want to read. And Angela Slatter's Bitterwood Bible. So there are kind of four books I really want to read, not yet read. They're there. Yeah. Gary? Only four. <laughs> well, The Three-Body Problem, I, I did enjoy The Three-Body Problem. I think uh, I think Ken Liu gets a lot of credit for having made that look like a novel that he wrote. I mean, not, not that it's his style, but it it is... A, a wonderful work of translation. It's also one of these things where the promise of what's going to happen in, it's one of the few novels I've read where this, not only the second volume, but the third volume is clearly foreshadowed in such a way that, you know, you'll want to see how the whole thing plays out. The, the third volume apparently gets into really wild and woolly space opera. Um, one other book I want to throw out uh, because, because it's so rare to see books from her is Eileen Gunn's collection, Questionable Practices. Um, and she's oh. another one of these writers who just has a completely unique voice. Every and also yep. another writer who's very, very knowledgeable about about the genre and the people in it. Okay. What well, I might. Another book. I'm not sure. Sorry, can I break yes, it down two seconds? Yes. I'm not sure if it's from this year. It might have been from the year before. Was um, uh, Proxima, the the the, the um. That is just Stephen Baxter. Steve Baxter, yeah. Baxter book, which is. You know, old-fashioned, high-concept Clarkian science fiction. You know, you wouldn't be going to it for the sophisticated study of character, but as a piece of science fiction, it is so exhilarating and so. You know, it's that kind of you're kind of mainlining the thing that you read when you were thirteen. Absolutely, and it blew your mind, and it's it's fabulous. I really loved it, but I have a feeling it might be a 2013 book rather than a 2014 book. I well, think so. I, I want to read the Stone Boatman by Sarah Tolmy. I've not had a chance to read it yet. But in terms of the books that I've, I would name check briefly, uh, Francis Harding's Cuckoo Song, which is an incredible YA, as is um, Gwyneth Jones's book of the you know the, that's come out this year, but has been has now disappeared and may come out elsewhere. I don't know. The, the, the Grasshopper's Child, which showed up unexpectedly on Amazon.co.uk and now is, is gone. So I think maybe it's gone to a, a proper publisher, which would be terrific. Which is a YA prequel to the Boulder's Love series, which is an oddity of things. 
Um, I really, really liked and, uh, and would recommend Gifts for the Ones Who Came After by Helen Marshall. They Do Things Differently There by Rob Shearman and Young Women in a Garden by Delia Sherman, which are all marvelous, marvelous short story collections, as is actually Death of the Blue Elephant by Janine Webb. Um, <clears throat> a couple of anthologies. I mentioned Monstrous Affections. I have to mention Kaleidoscope, which is Elisa Krasnstein's and Julia, Julia Rios's YA science fiction fantasy mixed genre and attempt to bring different perspectives to, to short fiction. Uh, Long Hidden, which was Tanana Review and Sophia Samatar's anthology, uh, bringing different marginalized groups from history into different speculative fiction stories. Some great stuff in that. Um, and others. I mean, it, it proved to be one of those years that, that felt spotty reading through it. I mean, you said that, uh, I think, earlier, James, but looks more coherent looking back at it. I share your affection for many of the major books of the year, you know, whether it be the, you know, the Gibson, whether it be the Abercrombie we were talking about, Gary, whether it be, uh, I should probably mention uh, The Race, Nina Allen's debut novel, which is a, a combination of three science fiction novellas, which come together into a, a, a very coherent book and it's well worth looking for. And um, probably the last thing I mentioned, and then maybe we'll wind up, is um, Sean Williams's uh, Crashland, which I've just read and enjoyed a great deal, which is a YA science fiction and novel. And he's Yes, I feel guilty. I should have mentioned it before, but it's not in my list of things because I read it before it came out, so I never stuck it in my Goodreads list. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's terrific, Sean's novel, really. Uh, and it has such a fabulous ending. Yeah. Yes. Is there, so you're talking about the second one, you're not the first one. Yes, the, the second, second one has such yeah. 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 So I would strongly recommend anybody uh, you know, look for those, the pair of them, uh, Crashland and its sequel, Twin Maker. And with that, which I think we're probably a little bit over time, so thank you for helping us yeah. wind up what was a very interesting and varied year. It was, <laughs> it was a pleasure getting to share some of it with you, both on the podcast and in person, and I hopefully we will get to do so on and off as 2015 unravels before us. And yes. Gar Thank you. <laughs> and Gary. And I'm going to keep interrupting. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> no, no. And Gary, you of course have to um, get on with writing your year in review essay so that uh, it can appear in Locus and come out in February. Yeah, of course. I'm going to do that. I also have to write a column that's going to come out in February, and I have to write another column. Oh, no one wants to hear your lunch. <laughs> yeah. But still, it has been another enjoyable year. This is our last, I think, live to air podcast. Uh, the others will be all recorded through till Christmas. So thank you for an another year. I mean, we're about to begin our fifth year doing this with, and as we move to tour. So five more ahead. And we'll talk to you then next week on the Coodstreet slash tour.com podcast. Exactly. Until then, thank you and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year to you, James. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you both for having me on. Okay. Thank you for this. <laughs> and thank you to everyone who's listened to the Coot Street podcast during the the year. We hope that you have a safe, happy, healthy holiday season and that we will see you when we return in 2015. There will be podcasts coming through, as I say, pre-recorded ones that are new to you, uh, and we hope you enjoy them. Until then, we remain now, as always, the Coot Street podcast.